Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. I'm Michael Crawford. With me, as always, is Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. Excited about this month's episode. I know. This is going to be a bit of an adventure. This month, we are taking off into the wilderness to explore what I believe to be one of the best themes in the Disney canon. I agree. It's one of my favorites. Yes, it's something that they do very, very well. Going back to the very beginning, it's obviously one of the first lands in the first Disney park at Disneyland. And it's something that's been around ever since. And again, something that they do very, very well. Before we get too far into this, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our episodes last month. It was a busy month, but it was fun to talk about snow and then talk to Frank Stanek over a couple of episodes. It was a real treat. Absolutely. The, not only were they fun episodes, but people seemed to enjoy them, which was fantastic. Really, though, Frank was awesome and I'm really glad we could get those stories out there. Me too. And just keeping score from all the people who, you know, talked to us for 10 years and and even started to tease us for 10 years about doing this podcast. We did three episodes in a month. So, yes, Uh, making up for lost time. So we proved it could be done. And here we are back again with yet another monthly episode. That is three in a row. What does it say now on your podcast app? It says nothing, which means we are back in the game. We are not a regular. We're not infrequent. We are not inactive. Yeah. So we we are current. The stigma has officially been lifted. So very excited about that. And we have plans for many, many more things to come. So that's exciting too. But as for today, what are we going to be talking about in this vast and wild wilderness? Well, it wouldn't be a trip to the frontier without talking about the king of the wild frontier. So we're going to start off with a little talk about Mr. David Crockett and his entree into Disney film and Disney parks. Yes, a, he casts a long shadow in the Disney legend and in America legend, but also in the Disney world. So that's very exciting. What else do we what else do we have coming? We will take a visit to a cinematic version of Davy Crockett's Frontierland in 1956's Disneyland People and Places. We'll look at the Frontierland segment of that film. That is a great film. I encourage everyone to hunt that down and take a look before we talk about it because it is a real cinemascope spectacle. Indeed. And then it's off to Fort Wilderness, a place that's near and dear to our hearts. We're going to talk about an attraction that was planned but never built in Fort Wilderness, the Adventure House. (laughs) Yes, this is a favorite little obscure project. Uh, The second month in a row, we've done a Mark Davis piece that we wish had happened. And uh, this is a really silly, silly project. So it's a lot of fun to talk about. 
We are going to stay in Fort Wilderness and take a look at the Crockett's Tavern and maybe even have a taste of a recipe from Crockett's Tavern and the Trails in Buffeteria. Yes, I'm really excited for that one. I'm always up for a stop at the Trails End. And finally, we're going to have a sneak peek of our next interview a little later this month with Mr. Bob Berenick. Yes, uh, we obviously wanted somebody with a little bit of frontier experience to speak to our subject today, and Bob has that in spades. So I look forward to hearing what he's got in store for us. So that is our slate of events for today's podcast. We hope you enjoy. Get your coonskin cap or your Johnny Appleseed pot. <laughs> that's, that's my speed right there. Yes. And uh, let's head on down the trail after we check in with our quartermaster and trail master, Mr. Walt Disney. Behind the gates of Frontierland is the inspirational America of the past century. Here is the treasure of our native folklore. The songs, tales, and legends of the big men who built the land. Some of them were completely legendary, like Paul Bunyan the woodchopper with his blue ox babe. Then again, we find that true stories about real people can be fabulous too. Now in our TV series from Frontierland, we're going to tell about these real people who became legend. Like Davy Crockett, the first coonskin congressman. Now Davy's life was so fantastic that it was hard to tell where fact left off and fancy began. Now here's Norman Foster, director of the unit, who's going to shoot the story of Davy Crockett on Davy's own home grounds, the great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Well, tomorrow we push off for the Davy Crockett country. When we were back there looking for locations, I noticed a funny thing. People back there still talk about Davy. They sing songs and they tell stories that have been handed down from generation to generation. In the hearts of these people, old Davy Crockett is still very much alive. David Crockett was born in 1786 in Greene County, eastern Tennessee, at the time still part of North Carolina. Crockett's family would be on the move during much of his childhood, frequently pulling up stakes and changing locations to make ends meet. David was even indentured to other families from time to time to help settle family debts, staying away from home for years. David would follow in his father's footsteps, moving from place to place and doing odd jobs as a young adult, developing a reputation as an expert marksman and hunter. Eventually, he signed on with the Tennessee militia in the Creek War as a military scout, often hunting to supply meat for the troops. He would participate in the massacre of Tallusahatchee under Andrew Jackson to avenge an Indian attack on Fort Mims, Alabama. After his commission was up, he would re-enlist and head to Florida, where Andrew Jackson's troops were driving the British out of Pensacola, searching for British Loyalist Indians in the swamps. Upon his discharge from the war, it was back to Tennessee and an entrance into politics for the newly elected Colonel David Crockett. He would run and win the seat in the Tennessee legislature often fighting for the rights of poor settlers against powerful land speculators. He would also turn against his old general and vehemently oppose Jackson's land policies, particularly later with the Indian Removal Act. Jackson's opponents portrayed Crockett as an ignorant backwoodsman, calling him the gentleman from the cane, 
which Crockett took on with pride, only boosting his stature with his constituency. Crockett would eventually land a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, making speeches on the floor of the Capitol against the Indian Removal Act. Crockett would be re-elected, but then defeated in a third-term election. At this time, Crockett's national stature grew more and more into the Davy Crockett legend of today. Back into a world of odd jobs and making ends meet, David benefited tremendously from a popular play in 1831's The Lion of the West, whose main character, Nimrod Wildfire, was said to be based on Crockett. A few years later, Crockett would publish an autobiography, and several other almanacs would be released around this time that would only spread Davy's legend. Frustrated with politics, Crockett decided to pull up his Tennessee roots and head for the then-country of Texas. Crockett joined up with Colonel William B. Travis, who ignored the pro-Jackson contingent led by Sam Houston, and decided to defend independent Texas against Santa Ana's troops at the Alamo. On March 6, 1836, Crockett was killed at the Alamo, though some mystery remains of his death. Most feel he was executed in captivity, though of course we know the legend says otherwise. So Michael, it seems like Davy Crockett was the perfect kind of protagonist to head off Walt Disney's Frontierland segment of the Disneyland show. Yeah, it's really interesting how Crockett was a legend in his own time, in a time that is so different from our own. I mean, now people are famous, you know, everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. But back then, with hardly a mass media or anything, he still managed to be famous. And it's really kind of crazy to think how that could even happen when the country was so spread out and divided and there certainly wasn't social media or anything like that. So someone who was a legend in their own time really was a good choice for Walt to pick to sort of be the figurehead of Frontierland. And it really worked out well. Yeah, there, I mean, it's interesting. He had not too many years earlier tackled some Johnny Appleseed. And Johnny Appleseed seems very similar in that he is a real person who there is some really fantastical legend about. But also his real life was pretty fantastical. And uh, Crockett was very similar in that regard. And there's just a lot of good stories you can tell about him, which I'm sure Walt gravitated towards. It seems like this this set of American legendary figures, Walt really gravitated towards. And at this time, Walt is moving into this kind of more historical, uh, obviously live action, all these kind of directions. It seems like Davy Crockett is a good bridge for that. Yeah, and when you think about... The package features from the 40s, uh, you mentioned Johnny Appleseed, but all the other ones that he did, uh, Pecos Bill, there were a lot of uh, tall tales about these sort of mythic American figures. And later he would do Paul Bunyan and even Windwagon Smith and a bunch of things like that. And do- doesn't in the intro to Johnny Appleseed, they even mentioned Davy Crockett, don't they? Yeah, they're they're talking so. about the different sort of different characters from America's past and their their sort of signature items. And then it comes to Johnny Appleseed, and they say, you know, the, the hat and the book and the bag of apple seeds. So I, it makes me wonder how long Davy had been on Walt's mind, or how long he had been interested in those stories. 
So as we said, Davy was selected as the first hero for the Frontierland segment of the Disneyland TV show on ABC. Producer Bill Walsh, who had produced and written Disney's foray into TV, the Christmas special One Hour in Wonderland, made the pitch along with Norman Foster, who was slated to direct. This was Bill Walsh's first big job, and he would go on to have some major success at Disney and kind of be a right-hand man to Walt. Yes, yeah, so he a big, big name, especially in the 60s, and even after really taking over the production side at the studio. So a very influential figure. Tom Blackburn, who we discussed a bit in Episode 4, was hired on as the writer. Blackburn had been a pulp fiction Western writer and had a penchant for writing narratives in historical settings. For the title role, many actors were considered, including Buddy Ebsen, who was already working at the studio as a model for the Dancing Man proto-animatronic concept for Disneylandia. Walt was considering actor Jim Arness as well, which led him to screen the science fiction monster movie Them, where he saw Fess Parker in a small role. Walt immediately keyed in on Parker, and before long, Fess Parker was slated to be Davy Crockett, with Ebsen cast as sidekick George Georgie Russell. Three episodes would be filmed initially, Davy Crockett Indian Fighter, Davy Crockett Goes to Congress, and Davy Crockett at the Alamo. Filming was done in Disney sound stages, but also in Tennessee and North Carolina, with some scenes filmed at the Oconalefti Mountain Farm Museum just outside Cherokee, North Carolina, and the Hermitage outside Nashville, Tennessee. Though they were aired on TV in black and white, the films were shot in Technicolor. The episodes from 1954 to 1955 would prove such a hit that Disney would repackage them as a feature-length theatrical release called Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, which was released in 1955. In addition to the movie, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, written by Blackburn and George Bruns, would be a massive hit song, and the Crockett phenomenon would extend to merchandise in Walt's Disneyland Park. It's really amazing to think about the fact that these were such an influential programs. And there were really only six, I mean, there were only six episodes. The, the three original that you mentioned, and then the later three that were the River Pirate story. And just six episodes created this entire national phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it was huge. I mean, it was millions and millions of people listening and buying the song alone. I mean, that is incredible. And, you know, you think if something was that big of a hit today, it would be a you know 23-episode season of a right. show. Right. But they just did the six. And the, just something about that combination. Walt did a lot of Frontierland shows later with a lot more episodes than Davy Crockett had. You think of El Fago Baca and uh, Swamp Fox and Texas John Slaughter. And all of those, but none had the impact that Davy Crockett had. There was something unique about that that, for some reason, really set everybody off. Yeah, I mean, you got to think it's partially to do with Fess Parker and Buddy Ebsen and that relationship. They would go on to tour all around the country and all around the world around Davy Crockett. So they had a charisma that was kind of magnetic alongside the fact that, like you said, the Crockett legend was a pretty big deal on the American subconscious somewhere. Exactly. And they had a great rapport. Well, uh, both of them 
Fess and Buddy Ebsen would be big parts of the promotion of Disneyland, even before its opening. In the TV special, a pre-opening report from Disneyland, which is now available on Disney+, Plus, Fess and Buddy make a brief cameo in costume, splitting logs for the Frontierland stockade. And when Disneyland opened in July of 1955, Parker and Ebsen were right there front and center, riding down Main Street on horseback as part of the opening parade. They were there, too, when Walt dedicated Frontierland, riding in from the wilds of the painted desert to the strains of Davy's theme song. And after a skit with the show's host, Art Linkletter, Parker and Ebsen sang Bang Wit Old Betsy, an ode to Davy's rifle, while a company of men and women in frontier garb danced and sang along. One day I took my leave from town I aimed a grin, a wildcat down The beast and I began to stare Was a growling grizzly bear Well, old Betsy My one and only Betsy I can travel far and wide With Betsy by my side Yes, sir, this is a gun that did it, folks about when you went together whittling sticks. Oh, yeah. I got myself into a fix. I was picking whittling sticks. The snow was frozen on the ground. Like a hungry wolves came round. Well, old Betsy, my one and only Betsy, I can travel far and wide with Betsy by my is an interesting song yes that is an interesting song you never think of fess parker and buddy ebsen as uh musical performers but uh fess you know disney released on disneyland records albums by fess and they do their little musical number and it's uh plenty well choreographed and everything that's true that's true This was only the first instance of Davy in the parks. At Disneyland, when you enter the Frontierland stockade, there's a store to the left called the Pioneer Mercantile. Now, when Disneyland opened, this was the Davy Crockett Museum. Yes. An opening day attraction. There was an Alamo exhibit, including life-size wax figures of Fess Parker and Buddy Epson and a historical firearm display provided by the NRA. Uh Hmm, Yeah. When the museum closed, uh, according to Disney A to Z, the wax figures were moved to Fort Wilderness on Tom Sawyer Island, where they remained for several decades, which would have been interesting. Yeah, and eventually melted. Silent fest, yeah. (laughs) I've been there on a few days in the summer at Disneyland, and I'm not sure how the wax figures would do. Lump O Fess. <laughs> in 1956, the museum became the Davy Crockett Arcade, combination shooting gallery, arcade, and Crockett gift shop, where Davy would make occasional appearances. Now, this became the Davy Crockett Frontier Arcade in 1985 and the Davy Crockett Mercantile, a gift shop, in 1987. Davy's name was later removed from the establishment although there's still an ad painted on the building for a Crockett and Russell hat company. And that, yeah, it's got the Davy Crockett little window, Frontierland window, the painted window on it as well. So it's a pretty cool little tribute. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. The 
the Frontierland equivalent of the Main Street window. Uh, another attraction picked up a Davy Crockett name later, Disneyland's Indian War Canoes were moved from Frontierland to Bear Country in 1971 and were renamed the Davy Crockett's Explorer Canoes. That's now part of Critter Country. It was a Frontierland attraction in the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World as well, operating from 1971 to 1993, and it also appeared in Westernland at Tokyo Disneyland from 1983 until it became the Beaver Brothers Explorer Canoes in 1992. In Paris, uh, they were only named the Indian Canoes, no Davy Crockett, and ran from 1992 to 1994, very short-lived. Another Davy attraction, the Mike Fink Keelboats, were in Frontierland at Disneyland and were based on the episodes of Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, featuring the show's Keelboats, Bertha May and Gullywomper, and they opened in December of 1955. The keelboats were closed in 1994, but reopened in 1996, only to close again in 1997. They ran in the Magic Kingdom from 1971 until 2001. They are still in Paris, but they're, they're called the River Rogue Keelboats. But you can still ride a keelboat in a Disney park. Mm. Boy, would I. Oh, I know. Those were I miss those. Those were... Those were yeah. a lot of fun. It was a great way to Davey, see the water. You were right on it. Exactly. Exactly. It was kind of a, for those who missed it, a sort of Frontierland version of the Jungle Cruise, a sort of yeah. wacky narration. Yeah. Uh, Davy made his way to Walt Disney World in a number of forms. At Fort Wilderness, Crockett's Tavern opened in 1986 and features many of Davy's artifacts. We'll talk about that later in this show. Adjacent to the tavern is Davy Crockett's Wilderness Arcade, one of two Fort Wilderness Arcades. And in Pioneer Hall, the Hoop-dee-doo show features a sketch about Davy, very famous, and uh, once featured you. Isn't that right? That's true. I was the brave. Yes, exactly. You got to go back for the trifecta. You've been two out of three. You got to go back for the trifecta. That's right. Uh, also, uh, Davy's song is notably featured in the Country Bear Jamboree. So he, he pops up all over the place. Davy's artifacts can be seen at Pecos Bills in the Magic Kingdom. A lot of different artifacts from different of the Disney tall tales, like we mentioned earlier, are all there. Davy Crockett's satchel and powder horn are on display, as well as a handwritten account by Georgie Russell of one of Davy's tall tales. Uh-huh. Along the rivers of America, you can see Wilson's Cave Inn, which is also taken from Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. But Davy's influence did not stop at the American shores. No. In Paris, their equivalent of Fort Wilderness is called Davy Crockett Ranch, originally Camp Davy Crockett. It was changed in 1993, and it features a number of recreational facilities, cabins not too dissimilar from those at Fort Wilderness and an array of exciting outdoor activities. Yes, that sounds like a pilgrimage location right there. I think they Definitely. have one, like a ropes course called the Davy Crockett Adventure. <laughs> so I'm glad I'm glad to see Davy's legacy continues today. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, Green estate in the land of the free, 
Raised in the woods, so he knew every tree. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. His land is biggest and his land is best. From grassy plains to the mountain crest, he's ahead of us all, meeting the test, following his legend into the west. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Davy, Davy Crockett. King of the wild frontier King of the wild frontier In 1947, Walt Disney sent husband and wife filmmakers Alfred and Elma Malott to Alaska to film subjects for the possibility of a future documentary film. When Walt viewed the footage, he found the subject of the seal most compelling, which led to 1948's release of Seal Island, the first of the True Life Adventures, a critically acclaimed series of 14 feature-length and short-subject documentaries from 1948 to 1960. Walt would eventually come back to the original Malat footage as inspiration for another series that would parallel the True Life Adventures, but this time with people and their indigenous cultures as the focus. And so the People and Places series debuted with The Alaskan Eskimo in 1953. It seems like the Malats had the Midas touch as Seal Island won the Academy Award in 1949 for Best Documentary and The Alaskan Eskimo won in 1954 for Best Documentary Short Subject. The series would run until 1960, visiting remote places all over the world and also producing a hardcover book with photos of shoots and a forward by Walt Disney. In the forward, Walt says, quote, We have sought out these few remaining places where the old ways are carefully preserved by people who cherish ancestral cultures and ancient legacies, The films were produced with the hope that, quote, a contribution may be made towards strengthening the bonds of goodwill and understanding by which all men can exist together in peace. So, Michael, this is an interesting time for Disney where it seems like he's changing his focus to these documentaries but also this kind of internationalism yeah absolutely he's sending crews out pretty much all over the world it's kind of crazy to think about these sort of roving film units traveling all over filming all these tons and tons of footage that's coming back to the studio and uh, like you said there's a real international focus to it that's no stranger to their to disney i mean obviously there's the Saludos Amigos, Three Caballeros, but it seems like he is entering this time where he's thinking it's kind of like the genesis of international street and the small world concept where, you know, people are together in a global community type of thing. And he's, he's kind of chewing on that. Yeah, that's a good point. I I think at some level he must've had a real fascination with other cultures. I mean, you, you mentioned the uh, South American stuff. And when you look at the footage from that trip, like he really got into things and like really would dress up in local costume and, you know, do as the locals did quite a bit, uh, really into the traditional kind of way of life. So at some level, it must have really appealed to him. Yeah. And in 1956, Walt would point the cameras on a not so remote land, Disneyland, USA. And that's what we're going to watch a portion of today. This, like all the people and places films, save the Alaskan Eskimo, was shot in Cinemascope, with Charles Boyle handling the cinematography and Hamilton Lusky in the director's chair. 
and this short was released to theaters with Westward Ho! The Wagons in December 1956. Yeah, this is... Well, first, I mean, the fact that they shot stuff in CinemaScope at that time was a huge deal. I, I mean, it wasn't easy, and it wasn't cheap, and it really was the dawn of widescreen processes, and the fact that he was willing to invest this much... I mean, a lot of the true-life stuff was shot on 16-millimeter... Right. And sort of, uh, you know, lower gauge stock or whatever you call it. Uh, but, you know, CinemaScope is no joke. And it really, really pays off here. I should also say this is the time where he's also getting into the Circorama, which becomes Circle Vision concept, uh, which he makes several films in. So it seems adjacent to that as well. Yeah, he's just kind of blowing things wide open, really embracing. Oh, I mean, as always, he embraces new technology, but... You know, widescreen is something he wanted to do. He wanted to do Fantasia in widescreen, but it just, the technology wasn't there uh, to support that at the time. And so finally the tech caught up with what he wanted to do. And he was really able, especially in the theme parks, he was able to do it. But even in cinemas now, he could do CinemaScope, which was, and, you know, at the same time he was doing, you know, like Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty in widescreen. So uh, he was embracing it on all fronts. Uh, one thing I always think about when watching this film was uh, we saw it, I I'm sure it was the first time I'd ever seen it, at the first D23 Expo in 2009. And that right. was my first Disneyland trip ever. And seeing, there's something about the way that this movie is filmed. Uh, these wide cinemascope shots, these vistas of the park, really planted in my mind the historical layout of the park. I, I don't know. In some way, it was the perfect accompaniment of going to the park for the first time because seeing it in the movie really made you understand how it was set up in the olden days. And you could compare it in your mind to how the park is now. And so it's so clear that you can really understand how things have changed. And I, I don't know. It was just the perfect introduction to the park to have the history of the park then to be able to go to the park itself and be like, oh, well, this is where, you know, Nature's Wonderland was. Now I get exactly where it was. Or this is where Fantasyland ended because the Matterhorn wasn't here. And, you know, this was like this and that was like that. So it was really the perfect match for that experience. Yes. And it's just gorgeous. And, and, and probably a lot of that layout stuff is due to the fact that so much helicopter footage exists in this it's just long deliberate flyovers to to beautiful music and you can really get the lay of the land and man those trees have grown in 65 years yes it's amazing to see the landscaping because everything is so very well manicured and very small you know very low right. to the ground right. and sort of immaculate we start with uh, Winston Hibbler saying, a new land has come into being. Its purpose, enlightenment. Its product, happiness. So, man, that's some, some serious yeah. business going on. Lofty, lofty. Right. <laughs> yeah, Disneyland was only about 60 acres at this time, but uh, Cinemascope really makes it look enormous. And since we're talking about the wilderness, of course, Frontierland was about a third of the park at the time, and you really see how it just dominates everything. Uh, you know, the Western genre was so huge in America at the time. We've talked about how Davy Crockett mania had swept the country. 
but even beyond that, there was a series of Frontierland-based shows on the Disneyland TV show. A lot of different heroes and sagas. And uh, you see here just how important the frontier was with how much it took up of Disneyland. It's been whittled away over the years, uh, first by New Orleans Square, and then they lost a lot of it now to Star Wars. But at the start, it really was just sort of sprawling part of the And you also have Critter Country. So it's four lands carved out of this chunk of land. It is impressive. Before we get to Frontierland, I had to mention that it it starts with landing at the Disneyland heliport, which was just right outside of Tomorrowland at the time. And then they catch the Disneyland Hotel tram. And that's just an exciting way to start. Oh, yeah. I love that tram, too. Everything's so colorful and sort of perfect and immaculate. And uh, that tram looks like a lot of fun. Right. And there's some great Disneyland Hotel footage. Uh, which had just opened. Uh, they have some pool footage, some shuffleboard courts, and there are these pargos everywhere carry- carrying people to their rooms. It just is, is a little bustling place. Yeah, there's so much activity and so much action. I love those shuffleboard courts. It's really amazing because it is completely unrecognizable compared to the resort today. It looks totally different. Like if you saw pictures of the two places, you would see no similarity at all. Right. And, uh, but there's so much going on, all these pools. It's very Southern California, mid century. And like you said, those little like trams zipping around everywhere, it kind of gave me the vibe of, uh, sort of James Bond villain lair of the time. Yes. Where yes. there are always little electric vehicles zipping around, you know? Uh, so it really looks like a fun and exciting place to be. And much like a Bond villain lair, everybody's immaculately dressed with very oh, little luggage. Perfect. Yeah, very little luggage. And yeah, everybody's really nicely turned out. So as we are talking about the wilderness, we are going to skip over Main Street and focus on Frontierland. There's some beautiful Main Street footage here. And they kind of seamlessly go into the hub or as they call it, the plaza. But then we head to Frontierland first, which is, as they say, dedicated to the faith, courage, and ingenuity of the pioneers who blazed the trails across America into a new unsettled land. And yet, it was kind of settled, right? But anyway, this is the culture of the time. (laughs) Yeah. But there's a beautiful long flyover uh, to the old Yeller theme, which wasn't going to come out for a year, but they're uh, blazing oh, it. I didn't it. even think about that. Yeah. They're, they're playing it here. And, and like you said, Frontierland is huge. It's about a third of the size of Disneyland at this point. Yeah. It's big and there's so much going on. There's constant motion on and around the river. You've got Mark Twain, the canoes, the keelboats. You've got the stagecoach going around the rim of the river. I mean, there's stuff everywhere you look there. Things are in motion. Yeah, we can see the new Tom Sawyer's Island, a giant chicken plantation restaurants there, which is kind of where New Orleans Square is now. And and the old Main Street bandstands in its third location. Uh, yes. Before it moves out of Disneyland forever. But 1956 is a big year for the park and a big year for Frontierland, particularly. You get a bunch of new attractions led by the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train, which we'll get to in a second. Also, Tom Sawyer's Island debuts, and the at the time, they were called the Indian War Canoes, now the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes. But all of these kind of debuted in the summer season, so that means this had to be filmed in the summer to be released in December. Yeah, it must have been. 
because everything, everything, all of those elements are there for sure. Right. And, uh, you know, it just really goes to show the fact that here we are a year after it opened, the park opened, they're adding so much, which, you know, I, they couldn't get everything done on time and they sort of were at their limit financially and logistically. And then it opened and was a success. And he went right back to pouring that money right back into the park with uh, all these attractions, these new attractions. That's right. And that's just in one land. So, you know, you to get the skyway that year, all kinds of stuff. But you see these beautiful, just kinetic things of the stagecoach, the Conestoga and the mule train and the Rainbow Ridge all kind of working together in an overhead shot. And uh, the next year, the stagecoach and the Conestoga wagon were going to go away. So this is a, a rare glimpse into time. Right. It, You know, again, a lot of times I'll compare early Disneyland to Knott's Berry Farm and Knott's, which still has their stagecoach. But here, when you see the stagecoach in Conestoga, it just looks perilous. It looks, oh, yeah. it yes. looks really, really yes. perilous. And you also have the pack mules going around, and they're, and they're all sort of crossing paths. And uh, it just seems like, for some reason, the stagecoach and the Conestoga and the mules really makes it feel like another era. And yes. an era when you could get away with things that you probably couldn't get away with today. Yeah. So we head over to the loading area of all these attractions. We see a mule train heading off with kids and little Asian conical hats, which I guess were sold on property. <laughs> yeah, must have been. And there's a shoot up in Rainbow Ridge, which cracks me up because people are just sitting there waiting for the mine train to leave, kind of not looking at it. But there's a shoot up, shoot em up going all around him. <laughs> And the uh, villain goes up to the top buildings, which are clearly forced perspective. Uh, and he is about as tall as the tallest building. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird, um, it's a, it's a weird effect because the forced perspective looks so cute from the loading area down there. But then you have this sort of uh, handlebar mustache villain in his top hat going up there and, towering over the buildings and you know nothing much is said about it it just is is what they what they were doing and i think they used to have in the very start a lot of live entertainment like this in the park uh you know like zaro i think would show up at some point and that's something that i miss that would be a lot of fun to have these sort of live yeah. things going on around you that was a time where there were no characters in the parks as we know them today and the characters were you know more abstracted kind of lived in uh, characters of Disneyland. So that would yeah. Be and I really like that. That's an approach that I wish they would still do. But uh, besides from the traditional Disney characters have these sort of local colorful characters around, because I think that adds a lot to it and gives it a, a flair that you can't really experience anywhere else. Absolutely. And for those of you who don't know that, that town of rainbow Ridge still exists and, Thunder Mountain Railroad at the very end. So still there. But let's take a ride on the Rainbow Caverns mine train. Michael, do you want to tell us what this was like? Yes. Yeah, so uh, this was a tour of, I guess you would say, a lot of the area now covered by Star Wars. Uh, but it was a tour of the Western deserts, uh, a tour of the Wild West 
a lot of scenic elements. It was designed by Bill Martin and Hopper Golf, uh, with the Rainbow Caverns themselves being done by Claude Coates, where you would go in and see all sorts of you know water effects and rainbow-colored waters, uh, which is really my aesthetic. This is this is something that I would have been all in for. I mean, that's a dream team right there working on it. That's, that's yeah, it really is. Um, and you know, the Rainbow Caverns train itself was pretty short-lived. You know, Walt always trying to up the ante, and he was inspired by Bud Hurlbut's work at Knott's on the Calico Mine Train. And so uh, just a few years after this in 1960, he closed the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train and added to it the huge Nature's Wonderland expansion, which I think there's good footage of that in a, a later Disneyland or World of Color episode, uh, because that takes this and really, you know, turns it up to a whole nother level. But we get to see... You know, again, there's the constant motion everywhere. There's a mule train going over a natural bridge over the path of the train. And there's, you know, a waterfall, lots of, lots of different things going on. Yeah. There's a beautiful little bridge when they, right when they come through the first tunnel and they go over a waterfall that the mule train goes over. But we, you mentioned Walt plussing this, that Walt seemed kind of uniquely focused on this attraction as something that he really him and Lily and literally loved and I believe he had a lot to do with it as well its development so yeah I think so and it's something you always see him pictures of him riding like with his grandchildren he would take them out on this train and uh, it was something he seemed drawn to a lot so I have a feeling you're right he was probably pretty closely involved in this so yeah, there's just tons of, as we said, and we're going to say throughout this, the early designs have so much uh, kinetics, so much movement everywhere on different levels, you know, and, and with this, it's just incredible to see, like we've said, there's the stagecoach, the mules, the Conestoga wagon and this train and throughout all these shots, they work it together where they're just kind of all working together in a kind of great movement it really draws you in yeah there's also a really great verticality to the area uh there's movement in lots of directions but it's on sort of different planes uh, it's yes. really you know all these guys were movie art directors and they really knew what they were doing uh there's a great shot where the train is going around a curve and the uh, stagecoach is coming around another curve sort of uh adjacent to it but they're on different levels. Like the stagecoach is down below the near the river. The train is up further up on a kind of a cliff side. And it, the sense of motion is great, but the sense of different levels and of a real geography is really compelling. So, I mean, obviously these guys knew what they were doing, but they were really bringing it here. Yeah. And, and then in the desert, there is a massive berm that they have built up uh, to wall out. I assume some back of house stuff, uh, towards uh, the back of the park, but it is, it looks intense. And that's where we see the wacky cactus hitchhiker, which is a common filmed uh, character yeah. of this ride. Yeah. They've got the cactuses, the cacti in different forms, and then they have the wacky ones. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the rocks. As he says, there's the nature's version of heavy, heavy hangs over thy head which is a bizarre birthday tradition I found out about where somebody uh, 
hits the present on your head and that's you have to what say something about the person who gives you the gift that is the tradition of heavy heavy hangs over thy head <laughs> I hadn't either. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, that is uh, a tradition that has not been passed down in our family. No. Thankfully, for yes. that matter. Yeah, this is a good gag. They've got, you know, all the teetering rocks, but then there's one that just has a, a circular, a spherical rock on top of it that's just spinning like crazy. And there's sort of multiple axes of movement and it's swinging over the train and it's really just a cartoon come to life. It's an absolute cartoon gag that they've made happen in the real world. It's really That's fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you pass by bubbling mud pots, different colors, and then they do this cool thing. Speaking of verticality, they do some real forced perspective on the top of some of these buttes where they make some tiny little Indian Pueblos that are made to look like they're very far away on the distant cliffs, as they say. Yeah, all a very fun attraction. I, this is an attraction I really wish was still there, especially in the Nature's Wonderland variant, oh, because that was even more extensive. I know. It's like the Jungle Cruise of Frontierland. Sounds yeah, wonderful. yeah, yeah. Then we go out to the river, and boy, it looks exciting. We see the wrought iron gazebo, which is uh, out there on the water, basically where Pirates is now. It was called the Dixieland Bandstand. And then there's a great shot with the band playing on the Mark Twain Riverboat. Another band, presumably the Disneyland Straw Hatters, playing in the gazebo. And they're kind of playing off each other as the riverboat goes by. Yeah, uh, there's so much going on on the river. There are boats like zooming around really close to each other. Uh, and it, I mean, we've mentioned the Mark Twain and the canoes and the keelboats, but there are also the rafts going to and from Tom Sawyer Island. Right. So there's, I mean, the river is full of traffic and it really makes it feel busy and exciting. And, you know, you've got all these different musical acts. Uh, you've got the Disneyland band uh, with VC Walker, who was the head of the band at the time. And the father of Tommy Walker, who would go on to be the sort of big entertainment guy. He was the guy who brought fireworks to Disneyland for the first time and did wow. uh, a lot of the pageantry at the 60 Winter Olympics and went on to do the 84 Los Angeles uh, Summer Olympics, too. And so he did, uh, I believe, the Statue of Liberty anniversary and all sorts of things. So a real entertainment tradition going on there. Wow. Yeah. So they're taking us on the Mark Twain riverboat and this, you know, it's hard to place yourself back in this time, but it was a huge deal for them to build a riverboat back then. You know, a lot of people have copied it through the years. So it just becomes part of the vernacular. But it was the first one in 60 years that was built. So they had to do a lot of research on it. And they built the hole in San Pedro, California and built the superstructure at the Disney Studios. It was quite an undertaking. And, and it was the kind of weenie, to use that term, of Frontierland, where, which would draw you in, the riverboat landing. Yeah. And it is funny how they built it, building part in one place and part in another, and then having to sort of truck them together and sort of mate them together in a different location but it really was the big draw of this area for sure and they they say a real indian guide can uh take you on a canoe trip which you know uh, yeah <laughs> yeah 
Then there's a, a picture of the keelboat docking, which looks like a major health and safety risk. It's just like so full of people. And, uh, <laughs> right. But those keelboats were from the, from the movie. Right. Which I had never realized that. And uh, on the DVD release of this, there's uh, thankfully a commentary by Tony Baxter and Leonard Malton, which is a great commentary. And they're such a great team. I could listen to them talk for hours. And, uh, well, Tony talks about how crazy the stagecoach was like riding on top, you know, you're taking your life in your hands, like rocking around on stagecoach. But then they're talking about the keelboats. And yes, I had no idea that these were taken, taken from the movies. Who knew? That is so, yeah, it's so strange to me, but it's a different time, you know, you could, yeah, it's a cost <laughs> saving, you know, yeah, you, you've got them. Why not use them? So we are going to see some dramatic scenes from pioneer days. And this is where we enter in some interesting territory. We've already kind of hinted at with talking about American Indians. You know, there's several different narratives at play in Frontierland. There's obviously the 1950s cowboys and Indians type of narrative, but then there's also some approaches to more progressive things. But on the whole, there's a lot of kind of stereotypes at play, but we start out with a, a settler's cabin set afire by flaming arrows, which this would be problematic for them. And they would change it over and over again through the years at Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that's been changed a lot. And man, that cabin was really burning back then, though. It was. It was, it it was, was. blazing away. My favorite iteration was when they had the Moonshiners cabin with the, the guy passed out out front. I wish so. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. But then yeah. there was the bizarre Eagle's Nest version where the eagle was in peril because of the, the careless settler. But. Uh, it's gone now because Galaxy Edge trimmed away the rivers of America. So yeah, a lot of this. Uh, I'm really glad we got to see it how it was because this was yes. part of one of my favorite areas of the park was this back end of uh, Tom Sawyer Island in the sort of wilderness area. It was one of my absolute favorite areas. So I'm glad I got to see it before it uh, went away. Presumably, the settlers' cabin's been set afire by flaming arrows, but. They say, of course, the Indians had their friendlier moments too, as they show a kind of uh, what do they what do you call the pre audio animatronic? Yeah, I don't know, v very primitive. <laughs> um, yeah, not even an animatronic, but a mechanized figure, I guess you yeah. would say. They show a little uh, mechanized figure, yeah, the, yeah, doing raising his arm to like say hello, right. Uh, and then there's a lot of commentary. Wildlife was abundant back in the day. And here the American Indian lived out his primitive way of life. But my favorite part is he says some resented this westward migration. And they show this hilarious bear turning away at the top of a rock. And I seriously laughed out loud at this. I laughed out loud. I rewound it to see it again. I laugh out loud every time I see it. I don't know what's so funny about it, but it's this it like really uh, funny. Little mechanized bear on top of a hill that really abrupts and just is like, nope, and just really right. quickly turns around and goes away. It's so funny, and I don't, I don't even know why, but it is. Yeah, some of those early figures moved super fast, and uh, I mean, I guess this was just on a, a kind of chain. They said, 
uh, yeah. in the Baxter commentary. So it's just kind of getting drug around. But it says, some resented this Western migration, show the bear, and others were curious and noncommittal as they show moose figures and some live ducks. Yeah. <laughs> it cracked me up. So then they show Fort Wilderness in the middle of Tom Sawyer Island. A frontier landmark was the Wilderness Fort. It was both a trading post and a garrison that kept the peace and preserved the treaty with the Indians. Yeah, hmm. well, sometimes. Sometimes. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Not many treaties right. were preserved, unfortunately. Right. And so they continue around the, the rivers of America. There's a nice kind of stogo wagon shot going by and some dreamy music. There's some ducks going by and paddling. Even and the ducks. I know the ducks were, were producing their they were producing their young, and uh, people are fishing at Huck Finn's swimming hole on Tom Sawyer Island, and this kind of had an interesting history as well. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they had it uh, kind of roped off in the water, like you see in lakes or things where they have swimming areas and they're roped off so boats can't go near they have this area kind of roped off and there are a couple of different piers there so it's a pretty big area there on the side of tom sawyer island and there are lots of people out fishing yeah i think that rope was to keep certain fish in the in there so it was easy to catch but yeah that would make sense and i mean this was a real thing you could really go fish and as uh tony baxter says in the commentary this ran into the problem of you know, okay, you're at Disneyland, you catch a fish, what do you do with it? Uh, right. You can take it with you or, you know, people would just dump fish into the trash cans and then you'd have like hot day rotting fish action going on. Oh. So that kind of grew to be a problem. But it really Jeez. goes to show like how, what I love about early Disneyland and what I love about Frontierland in particular is you are not going on a ride that is telling the story of a movie or it's not right. retelling you the story of a movie. It's not letting you see other characters act out a thing. You are the character, like you are the main character having the adventure. Like you get to go on the train or the stagecoach or the Conestoga wagon. You get to go fishing for real. Like you get to do all these right. things for real. And that, there's a real appeal to that, that uh, I think, theme parks have kind of lost from the early days where we're really about recreate, letting you recreate an adventure in these sort of exciting settings you had seen on TV. Yeah. It's funny that theme parks now are searching for interactivity. Well, how much more interactive could you get than just fishing? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty interactive. Catching a fish. That is, yeah, that is the ultimate. Yeah. So, as they say in the film, in the winning of the West, it was the railroad that clinched the victory and welded our country with bands of steel, and we ride on the train. And they really milk this, and it's just so beautiful. I could just, uh, you know, back in the day, I could have had this as my screensaver. The Frontierland Railroad footage from this is just oh, gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. It really shows, the again, the action and the expanse of the land, and it's just so pleasant. Yeah. And they do a lot of, 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 you know, foreground background stuff. You know, they have the riverboat going along with it and they have the canoes seeing the train pass in the distance and the view of the desert from the train is just beautiful. And, and that has the mine train and the stagecoach passing by. It's just 
really something. Just yeah, and the people are riding on uh, the train was actually the freight train variant, the short lived. Uh, at the start of the park, you could only board the passenger train from Main Street and the freight train from Frontierland, and so you could. Uh, there was only one stop for depending on which train you were on. Uh, you it didn't stop at Frontierland and Main Street, and it certainly didn't have the other stops in Tomorrowland or in Toontown or wherever Fantasyland. Uh, there were only two stops, but you could only get on or off at each one. So the people who were on the cargo train had gotten on at Frontierland and uh, were going to do a full circuit of the park before they got off. Yeah, that's such a funny idea. That's <laughs> I can't imagine as somebody who used to work at guest relations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how, much, how many complaints you'd get from that. And uh, especially since you were just sort of crammed into like a freight train as compared to the passenger train right. where you had a nice little bench to sit on. You were all like slatted up in the freight train. So we end up in Frontierland at the Indian Village, which was kind of set apart uh, from Frontierland, but was a part of it at this time. And it's a really interesting place. There's, They say there's 17 different tribes represented, and we're looking at the Drum and Feather Club, which used this setting for their festive activities. And we see a chief dancing with a baby here for a while. <laughs> I know this also amuses me because the baby is just kind of <laughs> yes. bewildered. It's kind of like, okay, what's going on? But yeah, the the groups were welcome to come. These were real uh, authentic, I don't know, I assume local or beyond even, tribes would come here. Disney really wanted authenticity and wanted to really represent the cultures. Again, this is that weird mix of the sort of, as you said, the mid-century Cowboys versus Indian view that you see elsewhere with this sort of progressive wanting to represent the cultures, let them come and express themselves and sell their goods and really show people their true culture, which is something you didn't see a lot of at the time, certainly. And uh, so right. it's, it's really nice to see it and nice to see this group who has come and are doing, you know, their traditional song and dance. They have a, a beautiful shot of them dancing in the ceremonial dance circle with the riverboat passing by uh, in the rivers of America and Fort Wilderness kind of looming in the background before those trees ever grew it. It's just a beautiful realization of that kind of foreground background thing. Yeah. So a little bit about this Indian village. It had recently moved here from a spot closer to Adventureland where it was in 1955. And the centerpiece of the village would always be the ceremonial dance circle featured prominently here, but the village would be expanded throughout its years here until its closing in 1971. To access the village, one would either walk along the wilderness trail that followed the rivers of America or walk through a stone tunnel beside a similar tunnel for Disneyland Railroad. This is kind of where Splash Mountain is today. So if you imagine getting the Disneyland Railroad out of Frontierland, you go through that first tunnel, it would kind of be right after that. Here one could board the then-named Indian War Canoes for an up-close view of the rivers of America. Over the years, artisans would showcase American Indian arts and crafts, and there would be various structures representing different cultures, from the teepees of the Plains Indians to the eventual addition of totem poles and a plank house representing Pacific Northwest First Nations tribes. Props from the movie Westward Ho! The Wagons would make their way to Disneyland, a burial ground would be constructed, and even for a time, a stuffed buffalo would be on display. 
A snack bar and Indian trading post would also progressively be included, going well into the 1960s as New Orleans Square was constructed. So this kind of seems like another different land by the time they fully build it out. It's kind of a small little land unto itself. Yeah, lots of lots of different things. You got your snacks, you got your merchandise, you've got your shows. Uh, this is something that I really wish was still there because it's a fun way to see authentic uh authentic native american culture and you know again i, I keep i keep bringing up knots uh, this is something that goes on there and i've always wanted disney to do an attraction i love the mystery lodge at knots oh yes yes uh, your mention of the uh, pacific northwest uh, plank house made me think of this if they had something like that there it would be killer it would be so yeah, great. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, a, re a real, like, respectful, neat, uh, atmospheric attraction about a Native American culture would be so much fun. And to, ha to be able to see, you know, the tribes. You know, we grew up in North Carolina going up to the Cherokee Reservation and seeing all the entertainment they have there. And so I've got a real soft spot for this kind of thing. So it's something I really wish was still there. Well, yeah, and of course, it was supposed to be exported to Florida as well. It's going to be on the the top of Thunder Mesa at one point in its design. I mean, imagining that would be super dramatic. That would be great. If very hot for the poor yes. performers, it would be it would be amazing. So, if, unfortunately, the village would close in 1971, but one can still, as of yet, see the Trading Post in Disneyland as the Briar Patch store adjacent to Splash Mountain. And I am convinced that some of these totem poles made their way to Fort Wilderness in front of the settlement trading post. If not the same ones, they're identical in the molding uh, to the ones uh, that they had That's here. a good point. Well, there were also totem poles in Frontierland, uh, that's too. True. So, that's true. Uh, they may have made those there and then at the uh, trading post, too. That's a good idea, especially since the timeline would line up pretty uh, squarely. Yeah, I've looked at all these pictures, and they are the same totem poles. Whether or not they are actually the same, I'm not sure. There's, but they are the same design. So, but one thing I do know is the trash cans of the village that were shaped like tree trunks do survive in Fort Wilderness. So those are from the Indian Village at Disneyland. I love those trash cans. We yeah. need somebody who has uh, somebody who knows these things out there needs to find out if those are the same totem poles because that would be that'd be a fun little bit of info that's right so that is a trip to frontierland 1956 a beautiful movie and one that i always enjoy putting on and wish i put on more it's just a great way to see disneyland at this time <laughs>
From the moment it opened in 1971, Walt Disney World's Fort Wilderness Campground was marked for future expansion. Many of the recreational facilities we know today, including the entire Pioneer Hall complex, were not present at the start. But Disney always intended to create a wilderness town on the banks of Bay Lake. Renderings published in 1972 show a large stockade wall with massive viewing towers overlooking a sprawling settlement. Throughout the 1970s, Disney continually added to the area. In 1973, the late and lamented Fort Wilderness Railroad made its first loop of the campground. In 1974, Pioneer Hall debuted alongside the Trails Inn Buffeteria and Campfire Snack Bar. And a long-promised old watering hole arrived in 1976 with the premiere of River Country. But despite continuing promises to expand the settlement area of the campground, it never reached the full slate of offerings that had originally been envisioned. Designs from the mid-1970s for a combination outdoor dinner theater and stunt show never came to pass. And even by the Disney decade of the 1990s, a promised Wilderness Junction Resort, which would link Fort Wilderness with the Wilderness Lodge via a Western-themed town, also disappeared into the forgotten mists of time. Of all these abandoned projects, however, one stands out as a true missed opportunity. From 1975 to 1976, Disney legends Mark Davis and Albertino worked on a proposed attraction known alternately as the Fort Wilderness Funhouse or Adventure House. This bizarre walkthrough funhouse would have been a spiritual successor to the original concepts for the Haunted Mansion, with a touch of the Winchester Mystery House and a whole lot of chickens. Jeff, what did you think when you were introduced to the concept of Adventure House? You know, the idea of making these resorts more attraction-based is so attractive to me. I remember when, in the 90s, I was so excited about Wilderness Junction, and I thought that would have been the coolest thing to link those properties together and, and have more there. And I feel like before Animal Kingdom, essentially, and before maybe Blizzard Beach, too, that this idea of having more attractions outside of the, the major parks was such a cool idea and you know the original concept for boardwalk the original concept for the new orleans square at lake buena vista which hopefully we'll talk about someday i just would have loved to see a walt disney world that had that in this huge fort wilderness you know fort wilderness i love going to now and i love spending time in even today i love going to the campfire and all that but but with this with some real classic imagineering and a whole little town. I just really hate we missed out on this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the 70s plans were cool. The 90s plans were cool. I, I, you know, the 90s plans, and a lot of those plans, they would have brought back the railroad, which would have been incredible, would have been just the greatest. I know. And like the 70s stuff, you know, you think of these little Western towns with the clapboard sidewalks and you know, all the little stores and things to poke around and look at. Uh, it would have really been something else, and it would have really made Fort Wilderness a destination almost almost a second gate before they got Epcot. It would have... Right. You would have had a ticket for River Country. Uh, the railroad had a ticket. And if you had all this sort of dinner show thing and 
the adventure house going on, all these little ticketed attractions, you would have been able to spend an entire day there, which uh, you can now definitely. But, but back then, if these things had come through, you really would have been able to spend some time there. Well, yeah, that's what I think about on, on all those projects. You think about how much it, would, it could have extended your stay without adding another theme park, uh, even with Epcot and, you know, they were working on these concepts after Epcot, uh, just to think about the full experience you could have had. And, you know, some days you would go to the park, some days you would stay back and do some resort stuff. And even now, like you said, there's a lot to do there, but man, it would have been really cool to see. Yeah. I first learned about this adventure house thing probably around 2013 when I was poking around doing some research at the archives and came across some of this Mark Davis art for a thing that I had never heard of before. And it was so weird and so funky and it was such a surprise, this chicken themed fun house. Uh, it really blew my mind and I wanted to find out more about it. And it was something that, because obviously I couldn't, you know, get that art out and spread it around. So I could never find out a really way to talk about it. But thankfully, a few years later, Foxy Everett Passport to Dreams put together a story based on a memo that we all managed to procure. And it uh, spelled out sort of the state of things mid-1976. Now, we were talking before the show you know, Mark Davis was on this, we think, in 1975 when it was an earlier form of this attraction. He's not listed on the memo that we're going to talk about, but then he comes in a few months after and puts out a lot of art for different concepts for what this house is going to be like. So maybe it seems like it's evolving at that point, you know. Yes, uh, it's a different, different kinds of rooms, different kinds of gags. And in true Mark Davis fashion, he's just uh, putting stuff out left and right and with lots right. of crazy ideas. But you talk about this memo. I mean, the people who are CC'd on it, it's, it's everybody. You know, you got Marty Sklar, John Hinch, Orlando Ferrante, and, you know, the whole, it's a giant list of, of people who are looking in on this. So you got to feel like it's on the route to being a real thing at this point. Right. It obviously had a lot of support and they, they speak in the memo about how they were mocking things up. They were testing things out. Uh, they were looking to see how these illusions might work and setting them up in warehouses, you know, to see how they would work. So it was obviously more than just a theoretical sort of thing. So let's talk about what this would be. The Funhouse idea began in 1975 as a walkthrough of a big red barn. But this was expanded in 1976 into an exploration of an entire house, a hotel called The Roost, which I really wish there was a hotel called The Roost <laughs> because I love that. Uh, this hotel was run by the ghosts of hoteliers Maud and Jasper and scores of their pet chickens, as well as an aggressive rooster named Tiger. As Mark would later recall, I had the weirdest stuff here. The idea was to disorientate you in rooms that were not what they seemed to be. And that certainly holds true to uh, the, the things that are described in the artwork. 
An update, the memo that we talked about, was filed by Imagineer Gary Goddard on June 9th, 1976, and it gives us a glimpse at the state of the project, then still called the Fort Wilderness Funhouse. He describes the roost thusly, a wilderness attempt at a fine hotel, a conglomeration of several architectural styles of the times with certain sections almost out of place with others. A lot of units that give the silhouette a look of many towers and additions to the main structure. Three stories high, it is covered with whirligigs and weather vanes that make the entire structure a constant show. The builders of the hotel are Jasper and Maud, and they serve as the hosts of the show. Jasper is a meek and mild-mannered tinkerer who has created the additions to the hotel and filled it with his little inventions. Maud, meanwhile, is described as a heavy-set, strong lady who likes her pet chickens very much, and in addition is a hero worshiper who has named many hotel rooms after her idols. <laughs> the entire hotel is filled with Maud's chickens, who roost wherever they feel like it. These chickens cluck, squawk, sing, and talk, depending on their moods. All over the hotel, these hens provide gags and comments on the various experiences. This is an idea that I love. Because it's so strange, but it's great. Yeah. yeah. Hotel of commenting chickens. Uh, <laughs> each room has its own character in terms of its design and function within the hotel. In addition, a number of rooms are named after Maud's famous guests, Paul Bunyan, Ichabod Crane, Johnny Appleseed, etc. cetera. Uh, this is a fun idea. This is an era when Disney was tinkering with the idea of using some of these legendary figures even in a land at Disneyland, uh, dark rides based on these tall tale heroes. And so this is another example of that. Another thing I wish they would have done, because that would have been a lot of fun. Guests were to queue through the lobby, where visual gags, mylar mirrors, and paintings of previous guests entertain them as they walk. Chickens are roosting in various out-of-reach spots, clucking from time to time. At the far end of the room, ghosts of a man and woman appear on the balcony, She's seated in a rocking chair with a rooster in her lap, which she pets as she speaks. And we'll have more on this later. So at the time, the funhouse was to contain a number of rooms. Jeff, what would we find inside? Well, quite a bit. I mean, I was shocked to find out how much they were going to pack into this. And as you said, this was going to evolve throughout time. At the state of this memo, there was three floors, as you said. The first floor would have a lobby and, and a kind of queue, and it was going to have some sort of hallway illusion. Now, I think this is kind of a hallway that keeps stretching, and there was some sort of talk about how this was in mock-up, and they were going to try to figure out how to make this work. But it seems like some kind of forced perspective hallway that you were going to go into. It was going to lead to the registration desk and pre-show, which, as you said, more on this later. There was going to be Maud's kitchen, which was a slanting room, supposedly not appearing to be slanted. There were going to be chickens roosting all around and hens laying eggs on into uh, Jasper's invention, the egg mover. And the ramps made the eggs appear to roll uphill. The water appeared to be running uphill. Uh, with the kitchen sink from the kitchen sink with running water. And there was a table and two chairs, a hanging lamp, pots and pans and dishes in the hutch. So I'm assuming that these would kind of hang straight, even though you're in a slanted room with 
the eggs and the water making the illusion of going uphill. Yeah. A lot of these gags are like sort of mystery spot roadside attraction kind of gags yes. that you would see in a exactly. lot of places, but with like an extra like Disney touch, like the Mark Davis zany touch. Right. And chickens. Yes. Lots and lots of chickens. Uh, on the first floor, there's also the Hall of Doors, and there's just gags everywhere here. Uh, there's a sign that says exit. You open it up, and it's a charging train projection. The Florida room has rain and thunder effects. A uh, door marked this way out is a passage to another door marked this way in. Get it? A restroom sign. The door opens to a prop chair. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. The old swimming hole, a wave effect uh, when you open the door. A smoking room. And this is one I didn't get. Man squirts water is what it says. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't see that coming. Didn't. Yeah. And then there's a beware of cat, which has a jumping tiger projection and do not open, which has a cannon blast effect. So a lot of playing with uh, different kind of little effects and uh, projections here, which sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. There was also two elevators at the end of the hall that simulate movement, but don't actually move, hmm. which also sounds familiar. Who knew? Yes, but we're not done. There's a quicksand room, which has what they call a waterbed effect, which I don't know what that effect is, but I can imagine, I guess. And an earthquake room, which has a mechanical vibration, assuming that's under the whole floor. And then there's a shaking stairway to the second floor, where we would find the mirror maze. And this seems to make it through a lot of these evolutions of this project. There would be projections, two-way mirrors, and other effects. And there would be two dead ends that you couldn't get through. And one had a headless horseman on his horse throwing a pumpkin towards the guest with laughter spreading throughout the room. And then another one has bats flying all around the room. So it would have been interesting to see how they pulled that off. Yeah, definitely. You can imagine, uh, you know, the illusioneers, the classic illusioneers, you know, you've got Yale Gracie and whoever else was working on this. You know, they would have come up with some amazing things. And you know they love working on the Headless Horseman, too. That would have been really yes. cool to see. So there's the Paul Bunyan's bedroom, which is an air mattress bounce. And you have a giant patchwork quilt, assuming it's kind of looking like a giant bed. Padded walls, a high ceiling. And you have a paintings of Paul Bunyan, Babe, and Paul's axe. So again, this is the kind of legendary American folklore uh, overlay here and then there's the dosi -si do hallway which is the dancing floor on the exterior balcony which i don't know exactly what a dancing floor is but i'm excited about it <laughs> yeah, this sounds like you would see it like the fair like a fun house at the fair where the people on the second floor come out and uh there's something going on i assume the floor is moving around all crazy but this right. gives me definite county fair vibes Yes, well, a lot of this does. Then there's the dark maze. And there you have rubber gel bars, treadmills, a sagging floor, revolving walls. There's a mist room with colored lights, a strobe room, a montage room with changing colors. So uh, <laughs> it was a little trippy. 
Yeah, and a little bit more county fair vibes, but with the the uh, fancy effects of the Disney Imagineers, and a lot of black light in there as well, and yes. sound effects. So then we go to the cider cellar, which sounds like an interesting little thematic area. There's all kinds of barrels around the walls with sounds inside, which sounds a little familiar. Sounds like little Disney MGM Studios right there. Yeah, you little Looney Bin action. Yeah. Uh, one has hiccups they mentioned in the memo and then there's all kinds of little slogans on the barrels that you open them up just like the loony bin you know good ideas never die <laughs> that's true uh there's a spinning floor with smaller little turning things inside of it and the barrels in the center have a chicken on top that is squawking and they have little self-propelled barrel chairs that spin and the uh, and as it says, a drunk chicken on the barrels that sings. So, I mean, come on. A Mark Davis production. Yes. Also, you know, may I mention that this sounds like a litigation event. <laughs> oh, yeah. Much of this. Yeah. There's so, you know, as much as we want this to have happened, it would have so been shut down by now. <laughs> right. For so many reasons. <laughs> right. So the last room mentioned on the second floor is the Prairie Schooner Hall, which is a swaying hallway. So I imagine this would be kind of a, you know, you go into a what appears to be a little kind of stoga wagon, as I'm assuming, and it seems like it's kind of swaying along. But would have been interesting to see what that would have been. And on the third floor, you have a lot of interesting things. They saved the best for last. You have. Yes. Jasper's Attic, which is kind of a maze and obstacle course, and this too would make it through all the evolution I've seen of it, has this attic. And it's kind of a little obstacle course for younger people, but they would uh, they would keep it so that everybody could make it through. But you would kind of enter in an open trunk and proceed through tunnels, bridges, and platforms of props and furniture with chickens everywhere. <laughs> this is kind of like the attic of the haunted mansion. Exactly. Like it looks like the attic of the haunted mansion, but it's got a bunch of chickens. Right. The cool thing I thought was they, they would put observation decks and see through areas into the tunnel sections. And there would be a periscope and a telescope on the, on observation decks with lookouts over the town. So you could kind oh, of cool. look around and orient yourself inside and outside. There'd be furniture piled up against the ceiling and it my favorite detail actually is that it ends in it's a short slide into a plastic egg pile with chickens squawking above <laughs> this would be the greatest thing yes i just imagine confused kids like what yeah what is happening this is like the first scene of dream flight turned into a playground with dimensional chickens i was thinking yeah i thought about uh world of motion a little bit and a little bit of tom sawyer island but i never thought about dream flight let's lump that in there as well yeah definitely so then we go to wind wagon smith's nautical quarter which <laughs> i wish it was like a a, a restaurant or, or a, a bar or something. a bar or a bar yeah 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 um, the, the name could not be beat. That is one of my favorite Disney names of all time. 
Windwagon Smith's Nautical Quarter, and it is a round lookout to the frontier town below. And it's kind of a pilot's room of a ship. Think Admiral Boone's house, I guess. But uh, yeah. the wheels turn and devices to pull. The kids can do it all. And and it makes sounds when they do it. And, it, and there's weather vanes and flags. And and they're when they uh, when they pull the levers, it activates props and whirligigs all around and makes sounds. It sounds pretty neat finale to this thing. Yeah, very interactive. Interactive way before it's time. Right. And so then we have a uh, a laundry chute slide exit, and I guess you know that's going to go to the laundry room. You would think. And so yeah, there's not much on that. There's a slide at the end, and and they mention also that there's a chicken route, which I thought was aptly named, that can bypass any rooms, but it also can just basically be an exit to the attraction throughout the whole yeah. thing. So This is for people who didn't want to take part in the gags, but could still see what was going on inside the rooms. Right. So at this point, that was the design and it sounds like a doozy i mean so much packed into there you wonder how big this and they give dimensions to everything it seems like pretty compact uh, and it would have been interesting to see people moving through this thing but wow what a show for for fort wilderness uh, totally that slide into the plastic eggs with the chickens oh so good but yeah like you said they give the dimensions of all these rooms and it would probably be able to like puzzle puzzle out how big this thing would have been but it would have uh, packed a lot of activity into its uh, footprint for sure yeah so throughout the year of 1976 uh, mark davis continued to refine the ideas for the show and a lot of the artwork that we have come from later that year and at this point it's called the adventure house better name so yeah, better name. A lot of these ideas take the things that we heard of in the earlier memo and sort of plus them up, give them a more coherent feeling. And some of this, some of the things like the American legend stuff is taken out. Sadly, we lose the nautical quarter, the Windwagon Smith nautical quarter, which is <sighs> a tragedy. Yeah. Uh, I think that should be a new district of Disney Springs. They could replace the entire like old West side with Windwagon Smith's nautical quarter. Uh, so some of these rooms, uh, in this walkthrough begin with a waiting area with a switchback queue where pictures on the wall open to reveal animated figures. Now this would lead to an entry hall. There are a couple of different versions of the entry hall, but in one of them, chickens lay the eggs. Uh, chickens are on a machine where they lay eggs, which ring a bell. And when they lay three in a row, it wakes a portrait of Maud and Jasper. It comes to life and welcomes the guests. There are also these gag seats that inflate or deflate as guests sit on them. So that's kind of wacky. Uh, there's a reception room in a library looking into an endless rocking hallway. Again, we see the endless hallway gag. There's an alternate library where the walls rock back and forth with uh, the books sliding in and out on the shelves. So they would sort of tip over and then tip back. In a trophy room, he came up with lots of different mounted heads of strange creatures. 
a unicorn, a dragon, a, a shark, a walrus, an ostrich, all sorts of weird things. In the dining room, we would see Maud's automatic self-serving dining room. Now, this would have a hanging conveyor belt of buckets that would come out from the kitchen and a model train coming around the table that would bring platters of food from the kitchen. When we went next door into the kitchen, we would see where loaded buckets of food were coming out of a cupboard and traveling via that hanging conveyor rail into the dining room. On the other side of the room, the empty buckets would return from the dining room and enter the cupboard to refill. Uh, the tilted room in this scenario is Jasper's den. There's a billiard table with balls that roll uphill. Uh, there's a huge fish tank with a rear projected shark in it. Again, with the projections, uh, this projection would be concealed by a curtain of real bubbles, which would rise in front of the projection surface and make it look more real. In a conservatory, a fog-covered quicksand floor would be kind of, I think it's similar to that waterbed effect you were talking about before, the kind of mushy floor. And uh, guests would be menaced by sort of monster plants on both sides of the path. In Jasper's photographic studio, Photo flashes from one side of the room would be matched by photo flashes from the other side of the room. And each time the cameras would flash, it would reveal a lingering silhouette of various monsters and ghouls on the wall. So this was really spooky sort of effect. In Jasper's automatic music room, the instruments that were sitting around the room would automatically start playing a tune as you walked by. The poltergeist or earthquake room would see everything start to shake for about three seconds and then would be still and then would start shaking again. So this was, it was just, you know, one effect after another as he went through these things. Uh, in a guest room, this was a pretty great gag. So there was to be a bear sleeping in the bed in the guest room. And he says in his notes, it uses the same sound as the sleeping bear in Disneyland's bear country. Yes. The one that you could hear there. Yeah. Uh, the bear's belly would rise and fall as he snores and his feet would tilt in and out as he snored. But also the room would change as he snores. The ceiling would rise and fall with his breath is like a stretching room effect. And the mirrors would tilt back and forward and the drawers of the bureau of drawers would open and close as he like breathed in and breathed out. So this would be a big effect, a showstopper. Again, we have the mirror maze where characters would appear in the mirrors, including Tiger the rooster. There was a bathroom where we would hear a woman singing operatically, but we'd go around behind the shower curtain and it would be a cartoon alligator in a shower cap. Singing. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, of course, ends with an attic maze, very similar to the one you described, with talking busts, a self-playing piano, and a hooting owl. And, again, many of the gags that we talked about before. So, so Haunted Mansion. How much more Haunted Mansion could you get? Very, very Haunted Mansion-y. This sounds so much more interesting to me in the fact that it's uh, so much more based on the illusion and less on the physical. And, and more on the staging. There's so, ma so many things staged and uh, developed here. I mean, I think the alligator one is a good example of that, where you're kind of moving through and seeing seeing it evolve. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear he took. Uh, they had come up with a list of illusions and gags without much context. It's like we have a shaky room, we have a tilty room, 
we have a room with this and a room with that. He came along and hung those things on gags right. and jokes and characters and made it work. Uh, you know, you think of the earlier treatment had rooms with just flashing lights. Well, he has the flashing lights, but it's the photograph studio and the flashing lights are revealing these big ghosts on the wall. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the tilting room before it was a tilting room and this one, it's a library and the books come off the shelves and things like that. So he's really taking their sort of bare bones gags and really coming up with a reason for it all to exist. And even the hallways between the rooms would have had gags and sort of fit the character of the rooms. And, would have had some odd little effects and things. So he really made it all come together. Uh, sadly, this incredible attraction never came to be, uh, but it didn't stop Davis, Bertino, and Goddard from cooking up ideas for Fort Wilderness. A year later, in 1977, they floated the idea for a combination saloon and theater called Sadie Mays. Uh, Disney entertainment impresario Bob Yanni had purchased a number of automated music machines, including a huge orchestrion named Sadie May. And this show would have featured live actors interacting with audio animatronic animals, many of which were copied from America Sings and the Country Bear Jamboree. And as you would imagine, the art is really superb and makes you really wish the idea had panned out. Oh, yes. Yes. It's so good. There's like an MC on the stage, a human MC, and you've got in the sort of uh, opera boxes off to the left and the right would be that sort of country bear rotating, you know, stage effect. Right. And these, you know, a woman singing a song and there are chickens backing again with the chickens backing her up. And then a lot of the acts from America Sings would be there too. So that would have been really cool. Mm. I hate to see if it. only I know, yeah. I know. but while we can embark on these fort wilderness adventures in the actual resort we can make a brief visit thanks to the theater of the mind here in their inaugural performance are the progress city players performing the june 1976 draft script for the fort wilderness funhouse pre-show this would be performed in the roosts reception lobby with the ghosts of Jasper and Mauld appearing on the balcony overhead. And now, take your places, for the performance is about to begin. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to The Roost, finest hotel in these parts. In fact, it's the only hotel in these parts. I'm Maud Satterpatter, proprietor, owner, and builder of the place, along with my husband, Jasper. Jasper! Yes, dear? We have company. Howdy, company. This here's the first hotel ever built in the wilderness, and if it seems a mite strange to you at times, you gotta remember, it's the first hotel we ever built. You might be a-wondering about all these here chickens. <laughs> well, when we first moved out here, all them wilderness varmints outside wanted to sink their teeth into our hens. So we just moved them on inside to be safe, and they've been here ever since. I even lost count of all them cluckers. But anyway, that's why we call this place the Hotel Roost. Tyre here is my pet, and he's the great 
great granddaddy of the whole flock. Say hello to the people, Tiger. Did you call, dear? In our time, the Roos has seen many famous people stopping in to stay a night. George Washington. Never slept here, but others who were headed west always stopped in. It sure was nice having real men like Paul Bunyan, Johnny Appleseed, Davy Crockett, Pico Spill, Ichabod Crane, and even Windwagon Smith. They all slept here, and what a great group they were. We thought so highly of them, we dedicated some of our rooms in their honor, as you will see. <laughs> what about that sweet calamity chain? <clears throat> what about her? <coughs> as I was saying, we want you to make sure to make yourselves at home and enjoy your visit. But please, don't disturb the chickens, because Tiger here is a mite overprotective. <laughs> Those of you who find some of our rooms a bit too ornery, just follow the doors with the hens on them, and you'll find the chicken's own personal way through the place. That way, you'll still get a good, safe eyeful of all we built. So, stay as long as you like, enjoy yourselves, and remember, Tiger and I will be watching you. See you later. We've talked about the outsized influence that the Davy Crockett craze had on Disney as a whole, but Davy's impact can still be found even in the most out-of-the-way corners of the Disney world. Take, for instance, Crockett's Tavern, located in the settlement area of Walt Disney World's Fort Wilderness. Crockett's Tavern opened in 1986, replacing the Campfire Snack Bar, and it sits adjacent to the Trails Inn Buffeteria. Uh, Jeff, this has long been a favorite haunt. The patio... With the rocking chairs is, I mean, top five places in Disney World for me to, to be at. Love it. Yeah, this is a great hangout spot. It's a great dinner spot. You know what? I feel like as as youths, we didn't spend much time at Fort Wilderness because we were so park, like focused on being in the park from rope drop till close. And we were some uh, Lake Buena Vista kids. We were at the village a lot back then. Yeah, we were at the village a lot. Uh, Pretty much the only time we made it out to Fort Wilderness was for Hoopty Doo. Right, right. So it was something we really kind of discovered in our late teens, I feel like. Mm -hmm. The 
the many wonders of Fort Wilderness. Yes. And it's something that, you know, I feel like people today still miss out on. So they really should get out there and enjoy it because there's a lot to do. It has its own little culture. It's really incredible. I mean, yes, there's a lot of stuff preserved and just a lot of stuff that's very insular and kind of a complete place you could spend a few days at without going anywhere. Exactly. There's a lot that's been... It's like a time capsule of early Walt Disney World. There have been encroachments in recent years, but there there's a lot there that is really pure and original. And as you say, you could spend several days there uh, just enjoying the recreation and the different activities and, you know, a lot of free stuff. You know, every night they've got the free campfire and movie, and that's a lot of fun. So it's worth checking out. One thing that even frequent visitors might not notice who are visiting the Trails End or the Crockett's Tavern, is that the decor you find in Crockett's Tavern represents many of the tall tales told about Davy Crockett's life, and with good reason. Local legend at the fort has it that the tavern was founded by two of Davy's sons, John and William, who had gone on a bit of an adventure retracing their famous father's journeys through the wilderness and collecting relics of his antics from people who had known him. Eventually, the son's travels led them to Florida, where they decided to set up this tavern as a tribute to their dad. And Jeff, you found out that tavern keeping was a tradition in this family. Yes, Davy's father, John, ran the Crockett Tavern in Morristown, Tennessee. And you can actually visit this place. When they had the 100th anniversary of Morristown, Fess Parker actually attended, and they built a replica of what the tavern would have been like. And it's called the Crockett Tavern Museum, right there in Morristown, Tennessee. We'll have to go check that out sometime, I feel like. Yeah, it's not this... far away from our mountain retreat. Exactly. Just go over to Crockett Tavern. So, uh, Davy's sons, perhaps inspired by this, set up their own tavern down in Florida. And inside the tavern, you'll find a well-stocked trading post with lots of artifacts tucked away in display cases or hanging on the wall. In the rafters, frontier provisions are stored away, and there's a birch bark canoe that was actually handcrafted by Algonquin Indians in real life it, for real on the walls you'll find davy's rifle old betsy and his coonskin cap uh, there even used to be an enormous and real stuffed grizzly bear but sadly that was removed a few years ago uh, portraits of davy and his compatriot georgie russell gaze down on the proceedings and there's a display case holding a copy of the speech which davy delivered to congress in the episode davy crockett goes to congress it also holds a feathered hat belonging to Davy's keelboating rival, Mike Fink. And if I remember correctly, Mike Fink had to wind up eating some of that hat uh, when he lost his keelboat race to Davy. Another case holds relics of Davy's service at the Alamo, including a knife similar to that carried by fellow frontiersman Jim Bowie. A 15-star flag like those in Crockett's day sits near a portrait of President Andrew Jackson, also a former governor of Florida, for whom Davy volunteered as a member of the Tennessee militia. Now, Jackson's placement here is ironic, considering, as we've discussed, Davy was adamantly opposed to Jackson's racist policies against Indians and really fought against Jackson throughout his entire political career. So, I don't know. Maybe the, maybe the kids didn't know that, or maybe they're... Nostalgic for the fighting days, maybe. I don't yeah, know. I guess so. Or we can all, like, throw things... Don't throw things at Andy Jackson. Uh, you can throw things out of Jackson. I don't know. <laughs> Nearby is a glass case holding a model of Mike Fink's killboat, the Gully Wumper, 
which Davy defeated in a river race. Uh, this story was told in the television serial Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, and which inspired the Disneyland and Magic Kingdom attractions, the Mike Fink Killboats, which closed in 1997 and 2001, respectively. Uh, thankfully, the attraction survives at Disneyland Paris. So that's a little tour of Crockett's Tavern the next time you're there, and we do encourage you to stop by. Take a moment to look around and uh, see all the displays, see all the artifacts, and appreciate some of the relics of Davy's life. But also, another thing you can appreciate while we're here is uh, another treasure of Fort Wilderness, which Jeff is going to recreate. Yes, this is a new segment I hope we can do every once in a while where we make a recipe from the Disney world. And I had the pleasure to make one from the Trails in Buffeteria, which is kind of a sacred place in a, in Crawford Disney experience. Yes, it absolutely is. It is a must attend, whether for breakfast or for dinner, for that matter. Uh, always a good breakfast spot. And I feel like we kind of discovered this when it was off the beaten trail. I think it has more of a cult following now. It has more of a rep thanks to the online world. But back when we discovered it, back in the the distant 90s, I feel like it was some somewhat off the beaten path and not a lot of people knew about it. So it was a great find. It was cheap at the time and just a really hidden gem. Yes. And, you know, that uh, there was a real magical guest experience that happened there where they remembered our drink order between trips at one point. Yes. One of the great things about this place is there are several cast members that have been there for years and years and years and years going back. Some of them I think to the eighties, uh, maybe some even before that. So a lot of long timers who just get there and really enjoy it and really have stuck around at the fort. And some of these have, uh, incredible memories for things. We had several trips in a row, I feel like, where we had the same server at breakfast and who remembered our drink orders from visit to visit. So it's that kind of service that you get down on the trail. We thought we'd start with the softball for me, and, and Wilderness seemed like a great place to try some cornbread from Crockett's Tavern in the Trails in Buffeteria. And if I was looking for a, a recipe for this cornbread, where would I look, Michael? Well, you need to look no further than the appendix for the Progress City Primer, available on the Amazon and wherever books are sold. But I put some of my favorite Disney recipes in the appendices for that, and this is in there because this is truly an iconic recipe. It is great cornbread. Uh, I have a friend who actually uh, uses it for their dessert when they visit Trails Inn. They put some soft serve on top of that cornbread and wow. uh, mix things up a little bit. So a little cornbread, a little honey butter, maybe a little soft serve. You never know. And uh, it is quite a legendary bit of pone. 
Okay, so we're going to jump to some footage of me making this thing with an excellent sous chef I happen to find. Here goes. Hello, everyone. This is John Watts. And we are in our kitchen. Yep. We're about to make some cornbread. Yes. We start by turning on the oven. Okay. Always a good place to do it. Okay, so we're still live. We need two bowls. We're getting two bowls. <coughs> two bowls. Here they are. I'm going to have you pour these things into this silver bowl when I give them to you. Okay, we're going we're to need flour first. We're pouring in the flour. Okay. Okay, that's enough. Alright, now we need the cornmeal. You gotta feel it first. This is from the Buffalo Milling Company. Okay, we got. And we like some. buffaloes. Yes, we like buffaloes. But. Even, but even they have horns, right, Daddy? That's correct. But we gotta try to stay away from them. Three quarters cup cornmeal, pour it on in. Now, yes. Some salt. One and a half table teaspoons. Remember to pat it. Yes, of course. We're getting the sauce, but we don't know salt. where it is. Not salt. salt. I mean. Way up hot. Baking powder, we need one tablespoon. Put that baking powder. And I, I miss, mixed it up, see? Mm -hmm. Wow. Now a bunch of sugar, which is, that's good. That's gonna be good. Why a bunch of sugar? It's gonna be very sweet. One and one quarter. Oh my word, it's gonna be so sweet. Boop. So much. It was a lot. That's all the sugar we had. I will not tell mama. Why? It'll just be a surprise. Um, one and one quarter cup, that's what it says. Okay. Egg, milk. Now we're going to have this blender. Okay, the baking pan is all greased up. We're just about ready to pop this thing up. One last stir. Oh yeah, that is looking really nice. Really nice. Here it goes. Whoa. Well, we're putting it in the oven. It's now in the oven. 25 minutes. 25 minutes till it, we're going to get it out. So now I can be a puppy. And now you can be a puppy. Now I can be a puppy and Jeff will report. Okay. We'll see you in 25 minutes. Okay. It's it, been about 30, little bit, little bit more than 30 minutes. Yeah. How does it look? It looks good. It's all bread. It's I all think. bread. Well, we okay. will try it later tonight and we'll let you know what we think. 
Right now, this is Jeff Crawford signing off. Yes. And John Watts Crawford signing off. All right. So, the cub reporter on the scene. It's always helpful to have an extra pair of hands in the kitchen. Yes, yes. He was very helpful. Very helpful. Um, so how how did it turn out? How What was the verdict? Well, you know, it took a little bit longer than to cook in my oven than the other recipe, but it came out and it was most excellent. It came out looking great. The texture was fantastic and it tasted like you were there. So this is a real great starter recipe for me and the cook at home uh, who may be listening, uh, you know, one to make where you can make it at home, but man, it is, as I said, it's, it has a lot of sugar in it. It's very rich and wonderful, but it is, it is like a cake. So I can see how the dessert option would be uh, utilized. Absolutely. Yes. That it fits very well into that scheme of things. So uh, it is, it is definitely very sweet horn bread. So all you needed was Ken from trails in there to, uh, bring you the drink of your choice and right. to give you the daily weather report and you'd be good to go. That's right. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, I use the, we make a lot of cornbread in my house and I use the cornmeal and, and you know, whatever, but this is just a little bit more complicated and you kind of separate out some things, but I'd say well worth the try. So pick up the progressity primer also, you could message us and get the recipe. I'm sure we would comply yeah, with that. Uh, yeah, just but you should read the book. You should read the book. But if you if you get me on Twitter, or drop a drop an email. I'll send it to you. Can I be a puppy now? Yes. At the trails end. I take it there'll be no more roaming for me There lives a sweetheart who said she'll marry me As soon as I get back to the state of Tennessee 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 I you calling me? The home of Davy Crockett in the hills of Tennessee So just like last month where we interviewed Frank Stanek, we are going to have an interview this month uh, and we thought we'd share a little bit of it with you today as it has a lot to do with this frontier theme. We had the pleasure to sit down with Mr. Bob Berenick, an experienced designer and former Imagineer who had his hand in so many different projects during the Eisner era. Michael, what was it like to sit down with Bob and hear his stories? It was great. Uh, he was very forthcoming with a lot of info. He was there at a time when there was a lot going on. And the Disney decade was kind of in force. So he was able to answer questions about several projects which I had heard of, but always wondered about and had never really heard much info about. So that was very exciting. But, of course, as you say, we wanted to talk about things relating to our theme of wilderness. 
And Bob was a great person for that because he worked on Frontierland for Disneyland Paris. He was a model builder for that, for Phantom Manor. And he also did some work on a Frontier project for Disneyland. So he had lots of good info for things we are interested in. It was great to listen to, and we hope you all enjoyed that interview in a couple of weeks. And we're going to let you hear a little bit of it right now. Here's Bob. Cascade Peak, which was a, a mountain on the rivers of America with a bunch of waterfalls, and they would not maintain the pumps. It was rotting, and they didn't want to fix it. And so um, Disneyland management, I was a little bit autonomous because I was down at Disneyland as the art director and they came to me and said, what would you do to replace Cascade Peak with an attraction? And they specifically asked for Tower of Terror and which is enormous um, facilities, just enormous, way out of scale for Disneyland. And, but what we talked about was a way to take the Tower of Terror ride mechanism and bury a third of it in the ground and retheme it as um, geyser falls which was a mine shaft built over a geyser basin on the river it was a really neat idea it actually ended up scaling well to disneyland because we were because we cut it down so far it, it cut the budget almost in half oh, wow. but imagineering did not approve it because they felt like it was more dynamic than big thunder and overpowered big thunder Interesting. But I understand after I left uh, Imagineering that they took that concept and turned it into, I think they called it Geyser Mountain for Paris. It's a whole different thing. I mean, that was more of a structure above ground, big, big, tall building. Um, but it, and unfortunately, it didn't get built there either. But, you know, these ideas never die. They, they go in the shelf and somebody in another generation for another purpose will bring them back to life. Exactly. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was something I, I had wanted to ask you about because I had first heard about that project with regards to Paris as an attraction for Frontierland there. So I was interested to find out that it had originated as a Disneyland thing. Yes. And that would have been a fascinating addition there alongside the rivers of America. Very different. Um, Pat Burke did the drawings, I believe for Disneyland Paris, but my understanding is he was not able to bury the structure. So it's quite tall and probably did not get built because it just didn't scale to Disneyland Paris. I don't think, but it was a little more charming for Disneyland because it was this rickety ramshackle little mine shaft something you'd see at Knott's Berry Farm Yes, that was built around the geysers. And so the, the concept was that you got in the elevator to go down into the mine, and all of a sudden one of the geysers erupts underneath you and lifts you to the top of the tower. Now it's wide open, so you can see everything. And then the geyser quits and plunges you down into the ground. That's It's such a fun idea. And I would imagine it's a challenge designing for Disneyland because you're working at a scale that's so much smaller than the other parks. You really have to keep things yes. to that smaller scale or it will totally throw everything off. But I, I was raised on that. So it wasn't a challenge for me. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm a model builder and I would tend to think smaller scale. It, it was interesting the first time I went to Walt Disney world, cause everything was so big. 
Yes. I just wasn't used to it. Yes. I think everybody has the experience one way or the other. We grew up with Disney World going yeah, the other yeah. way. It's like, oh, this is so cute. Everything's yeah. so, you know, yeah. at such a smaller scale. And you the really. The castle's so dinky. <laughs> no, not at all. It, you just get, you kind of get what Walt was going for. And, you know, you're a model maker. Walt was a model maker. Walt loved miniatures. Yeah. And you really get right. what he was going for with creating this sort of miniature world. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you mentioned Alice Davis and you've said uh, in the past that one of your biggest early influences was the book they put out about the making of Pirates of the Caribbean. And Phantom Manor uses right. some of Mark's concepts for Western River Expedition. What was your impetus to bring that into the attraction and uh, maybe some thoughts about his work in general. Well, we were all inspired. That entire generation was inspired by Western river expedition and, you know, just sick that it wasn't built. I mean, obviously Mark was upset about it, but we were all looking forward to that. And we knew that with Phantom Manor, we had the opportunity to do a new finale. Jeff was very, influenced by phantom of the opera he had gone to london jeff burke had, had seen phantom of the opera and so that's where the whole character and storyline came from my influence was primarily the end of the attraction where we were trying to create a western you know thunder mesa western river expedition we had the opportunity to do all those little buildings and characters and stuff. So it worked out really well. They were they were a perfect blend. And it was just a, a way to pay tribute to Mark and, and what maybe was one of his biggest visions that was never realized. So that wraps up our backwoods edition of the progress city radio hour we're coming back to civilization and the southern california freeways but after we've spent some time on the trail we hope you've enjoyed a peek at some of disney's wilderness adventures there's obviously a lot more that we can talk about in the future don't you think Yes, I do. I feel like we're going to say this at the end of every episode, but when we were coming up with a list of things to talk about, it was very lengthy. So we will definitely be back to the wild areas of the Disney kingdoms. So stay tuned for that. Yes, exactly. There are at least uh, a dozen more menu items at Trails End that we can make. So there, yes. we at least have that. Uh, we'd like to thank Mr. Bob Baronet for chipping in with some memories of his life on the frontier. And we'd like to thank you for listening. Above all, we really appreciate it and appreciate all the feedback. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find me at Progress City USA on the Twitters. You can email us at 
podcast at progresscityusa.com. Please let us hear. We would love to hear from you. We would love to hear ideas, suggestions, feedback, anything. You know, we want to open up that mailbox someday and see what's inside. So let us hear back. Jeff, any final thoughts? Just stay tuned for Bob Berenick's episode in a couple of weeks, and we have a themed episode next month I am very personally excited about. So subscribe and uh, yeah, feel free to write us and review us, all that good stuff. Thanks for listening, as always. Absolutely. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Right now, it's time to go. Remember... Everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks Thanks for for joining joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.